Now we're going to turn to read from God's Word. And the reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is God's word. Evening everyone, thanks Liz for reading. Evening to those who are joining on the live stream. It would be great if you could see those verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. And let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father God, there are so many things that distract us, so many things that cause us to lose focus. And we pray that whatever it is for us this evening, you would help us for the next few minutes to focus on your word, to hear what you have to say. We pray that these words would help us and shape us to be the people you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a, a book review this week in the papers entitled, um, the book was called Bunker, Building for the End Time. It considers the, the contemporary survivalist culture, the way that people worry about how the, the world might end. People worrying about nuclear disaster and terrorism and pandemics and wars. Um, apparently 3.7 million Americans, over 1% of the population, self-identify as preppers. That is, those who are actively preparing for the end of the world. You get the, the sort of small-time people who just pack a little bag and get ready to grab it and run in the event of a disaster. You get the celebrities that Tom Cruise reportedly spent $10 million on an underground bunker beneath his ranch to, to flee to in case of a disaster. And then you get the, the entrepreneurs who, who try to, to monetize this. Larry Hall apparently has, has taken a Cold War nuclear silo just outside Kansas, and he's turned it into a 15-story deep inverted sort of, I don't know, flats, I guess, beneath um, this, this nuclear silo. And he's marketed it as a place where 75 people can live for up to five years in the event of disaster. And so the author looks at all sorts of different people who are preparing themselves for the end of the world. Now, now I don't know how you, you feel about that as you, you hear that. Maybe you're, you're intrigued. Maybe you think they're just crazy. Or perhaps you're a little bit worried that you aren't prepared enough for what might happen. How will the world end? What can we realistically do to prepare for it? Well, in tonight's passage, we, we turn to hear what God has to say about those two very, very important questions. How will the world end? And what can we realistically do to prepare for it? 
We're back again in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. We've been here for the whole of the summer, really. And the church at Thessalonica is going really well. They're doing great as Christians. And Paul has mostly been writing to assure them that they're going well and to tell them to keep on going. There aren't any major issues. There are no major heresies in the church. There are just a few confusions, perhaps mostly about their future hope. So as you remember last week, we were thinking about how they were a bit confused about death. And we heard encouraging words about death. Well, this week, there's some confusions about the end of the world. And so again, we're going to hear some encouraging words about the end of the world. You'll see Paul's intention in verse 11 as you look at the passage. This is where we're going to get to. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. These words about the end of the world are not just for us as individuals, but for us as a whole church family to know how we can encourage and build one another up in the light of what's going to happen in the future. So the way that the passage breaks down is is a bit like this. So we're going to go verses 1 to 3. The end of the world will be sudden and destructive. Then verse 4 to 8. So be alert. And verse 9 to 11. And look to the cross for salvation. So the end of the world will be sudden and destructive. So be alert and look to the cross for salvation. That's where we're going this evening. So let's, let's then dive in at verses 1 to 3. The end of the world will be sudden and destructive. Look at what Paul writes. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, in these verses, Paul is talking about the end of the world. It might perhaps be hidden in the language that he's using. He uses that little phrase, day of the Lord, The day of the Lord, you'll spot that there in verse 2. And that's the day when Jesus Christ is going to come back to this world and he's going to judge the world. It's actually an Old Testament reference. If you've read the first half of the Bible, this comes up quite a lot in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is the day that God comes to destroy his enemies and rescue his people. Just listen to to how it's described in Zephaniah chapter 1. This is one of the Old Testament prophets. And just listen to, to the destructiveness of the language. Zephaniah wrote this, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Do you you hear the destructiveness of the language? The day of the Lord is this cosmic in scale, and it's the day when God comes to destroy his enemies and rescue his people. For those of us who who were here last week, you might remember that I talked about the day Jesus was going to come back in royal terms. So like the Diamond Jubilee celebrations with crowds and crowds of people coming to meet him, cheering. And it's a wonderful image. But you have to understand this day of the Lord image, it's the same coin, it's just the other side. You can't have last week's royal celebration image without this week's day of the Lord image. They go together. Because in Lord of the Rings terms, you can't enjoy the moment that Aragorn is finally crowned king without also having the destructive battle and the destruction of Sauron the enemy. See, when King Jesus returns, he's not just returning to to bring great joy to all of his people who love him, to cheering crowds, 
No, he's also returning to conquer his enemies, to bring his rightful anger and everlasting punishment on those who've rejected him. You can't have one without the other. There's no peace until all the enemies are gone. And so Paul is saying that this this day that Jesus returns is going to be a day of destruction. And you'll see the point that he's making again with the two images he uses in these verses. They both show how it's a sudden and destructive day. Just look down at at verse 2 and you'll see the first image. It says, For you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The point is you don't know when the thief is going to break into your house to steal your stuff. You, You just don't know. I mean, thieves don't send an email beforehand, right? They don't say, you know, dear James, as a matter of courtesy, I just thought I'd let you know that I'll be coming to your house next week on Wednesday, two o'clock in the morning. I've added it to your calendar so you can RSVP if you'd like. Kind regards, thief. Doesn't happen. They come in the middle of the night. It's sudden. It's destructive. One day their destructive power breaks into your life. You don't know. And he's saying that about the return of Jesus. It will be sudden and destructive. One day Jesus will return and it will be sudden and destructive. The second image you'll see at the end of verse 3, he talks about it being like labor pains coming on a pregnant woman. Now, our son is almost one year old, which means about a year ago, we were waiting for him to be born. Now, I won't give you too many details, but if we'd had the choice, we wouldn't have decided it to begin at 2 a.m. in the morning. That's not when we'd have scheduled it. It's quite uncomfortable for that to happen then. You don't get the choice. It just happens. And I can also say without too many details, it's very painful. It's destructive. And you have to remember when Paul is writing that there's no anesthetic. For, for a woman to go into labor, well, actually lots of women would die in labor. It's, it's a destructive image. One day when you're not expecting it, the sudden and destructive power of labor pains break into your life. That's what the return of Jesus will be like. It will be sudden and destructive. Both the thief in the night and the labor pains image, that's what Paul is trying to explain. And he's saying that nobody knows when it's going to happen. You see that there clearly, verse 1, about times and dates we don't need to write to you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You just don't know. The times and the dates, you don't know it will be sudden and destructive. What Paul is saying is nobody knows when Jesus will return. They don't know the exact time, the exact date. You know, if someone tells you that they know, if someone says they've had a a vision or a dream that that God has given them some special insight and it's going to happen and they tell you the time and the date, you can ignore it. They don't know because God says here, they don't know. Nobody knows. It will be a sudden and destructive day. But despite the fact that this day is going to be sudden and destructive, we can see the attitude most people have towards it in verse 3. Just look down at verse 3. Paul writes, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. The attitude most people have to the return of Jesus to to rescue his people and to destroy his enemies is a, a peace and safety mentality. It seems that Paul's actually making a play on a piece of Roman propaganda at the time, right? So Rome had conquered a large part of the world, and the Roman emperors were saying, if you live in Rome, there's now peace. All of the enemies have been destroyed, so you can just relax, you can enjoy yourself, you can get on with whatever you want to do, enjoy your leisure and your business and your trade, whatever you wanted to just relax, peace and safety if you're in the Roman Empire. That's what you'd see on all the TV ads and all the billboards going around at the time, peace and safety, And Paul is saying that attitude of peace and safety is what most people have 
towards the end of the world. People say peace and safety. Look, if you went out on the streets of London tonight and, and just interviewed whoever you bumped into in a socially distanced way, of course, you interviewed them and said, what do you think about the return of Jesus, a day of the Lord when he's going to come back to destroy his enemies? Most people will just laugh at you and say, not going to happen. Don't be silly. Peace and safety. Yeah, I guess at some point in millions of years' time, maybe the sun's going to explode, or maybe who knows what's going to happen. There's going to be a big crunch in the universe. But that's millions of years away. Not in my lifetime. So for me, peace and safety. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to enjoy myself. I'm going to get on with whatever I want to do, follow my own leisure activities and, and business desires, my career, whatever I want to. I'm going to do that. Because, well, peace and safety, the, the world's not going to end. But Paul says it is while people are saying peace and safety that destruction will come on them and they will not escape. That the day of the Lord will come and it be while people are saying peace and safety, that will be exactly the attitude you'll expect to find in the world. Peace and safety. And it's ominous, isn't it? See, the end of the world won't be random. Though, though we don't know the day and the time, God has set a day and a time. It's in his calendar. It's marked in red. And when that day comes, Jesus is going to return in all of his glory. And it will be a day where he destroys his enemies and rescues his people. And for the moment, most people are just saying peace and safety about that. It's ominous, the words at the end. They will not escape. But that is what's going to happen, says Jesus. Those who presume there'll be no return of Jesus, no judgment day, and certainly no everlasting punishment for rejecting him. That day is coming. And Paul says we need to be ready. We'll think a bit more about that at the end, how we get ready. But for now, let's just look at the attitude that Christians should have to this day of the Lord. We're going to turn to verses 4 to 8 now. And we'll see, Paul says, Christians should be alert. So instead of the, the peace and safety mentality you see everywhere in the world, Christians need to be alert. Let's read verses 4 to 8 again. Paul writes, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. You see, so in contrast to the peace and safety mentality that's everywhere, Christians, we need to have a different mentality, an alert mentality. You can see that he wants that in, in verse 4. The day shouldn't surprise you. So although no one knows exactly what day it's going to happen, you can't pencil it into your diary, at the same time, it shouldn't be a surprise. In other words, we should be ready for it every day. That's what he's saying. If we're ready for it every day, it's not going to surprise us. It's not that we know the day, we just have to be ready for it every day, be alert. That's what he wants. And you'll see the way he, he explains is by contrasting darkness and light. Do you see that the darkness and light language all the way through those few verses? Now, at a human level, right, we know that people act very differently in the darkness of night compared to the light of day. J just come, on we, come with me on a trip for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're walking through the, the streets of London. It's about mm, 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning. Now, what are most people doing in the darkness of night? What are most people doing? Most people are asleep, 
right? Most people are tucked up in beds, they're asleep. What are the rest of the people, the few people who are, who are around doing? Well, they're out, as in out, out, right? They're, they're out drinking and partying and dancing. That's what's going on. In the darkness of night, people sleep or they get drunk. That's kind of what happens in the darkness of night. But if you walk through those very same streets of London in the light of day, you don't find people sleeping. You don't find people getting drunk. No, instead, the only thing people are drinking is coffee as they run with their briefcases to get to work or working from home. Because they want to be alert. There's a day, there's things to do, things to see, people to go and talk to, work to be done. In the day, people are awake and sober. In the night, they're asleep or drunk. That's the comparison Paul is making. And he's saying, spiritually speaking, Christians are to live in the light of day, not the darkness of night. That is, we're to be awake and alert, not asleep and drunk. Even though the coming day of the Lord will be sudden, we don't know exactly the day and the time. It shouldn't take us by surprise. We should be ready for it, awake and alert. Now, the reasoning for it is really, really important. So just look down at at verse 5. He says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. Then verse 6, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. So he says, you are children of the light, so be awake, right? He's saying, be what you are, not make yourself awake. He's saying, you are a children of the light, so be awake. Christians are to live out what we are. He's saying, look, when you became a Christian, when you put your trust in Jesus, God moved you from a realm of darkness to a realm of light. That's what happened. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is called the light of the world. He moves people from darkness to light. If I can put it like this, when you became a Christian, God woke you up and sobered you up. That's what happened. In the light of Jesus Christ, we were woken up, just like a sleeping person has no awareness of what's going on around them until they're woken up. When you became a Christian, God woke you up to to be aware of who God is and what sin is and judgment and the future and forgiveness. He woke you up to all of those realities. That's what it means to become a Christian. You were woken up. In the light of Jesus, you could see that clearly. Or in the light of Jesus, we were sobered up. Just as a drunk person has no awareness of how destructive and, and selfish and often addictive their behavior is, so we didn't know how selfish and addictive and dangerous and damaging our behavior was as we sinned, until in the light of Jesus we were sobered up and forgiven. He's saying, if you trust Jesus, the light of the world, you have been woken up and sobered up. So don't go back to sleep. So don't go back to the drink. Stay awake and alert. Live out what you are as Christians, especially as you know the day Jesus is going to come back is coming, especially as you know that. Stay awake and stay alert. So the question then is, what does that look like in practice, right? How do I live that out every day? How do I stay awake and alert? And that's where verse 8, I think, is really, really helpful. Look down again at verse 8, and we'll see what it says. Paul writes, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He, He pictures a soldier And simple question, how does a soldier get ready for a battle? They put on their armor, right? You don't see a soldier walking off to the battlefield and, oops, forgot my helmet at home. Oh, breastplate, that's hanging up by the the stairs, isn't it? Whoops. No, no, they don't do that. They're ready. They've got it on. The armor is on. 
And just like the soldier has their armor on ready, so a Christian has their armor on, which is faith, love, and hope. Now, if you've been with us, though, the whole of this letter, you'll see faith, love, and hope coming up again and again and again. It's It's a massive theme throughout the whole of the letter. I think if you ask Paul, what does it mean to be a Christian at the end of writing 1 Thessalonians, he'd say to live with faith, love, and hope. And so that's how we get ready every day for the return of Jesus. Faith, that just means trusting Jesus, listening to what he says and and putting it into practice each day. I know this might sound really, really simple, but it's really simple for a soldier to put their armor on, so I'm just going to run through it. It's so simple, but you have to know it. Faith is trusting in Jesus, listening to what he says, believing it and acting on it. It's really hard to do that when we don't read our Bibles. We just have to be reading our Bibles so we can trust what Jesus says every day. Love, that's sacrificially giving ourselves for other Christians. Sacrificially giving ourselves for other Christians, just like Jesus gave himself for us in love. And it's hard to do that if we're not committed to a church. And then hope, that is looking forward to the return of Jesus and receiving salvation from him. It's hard to do that when we're fixating our lives on other things, whether it's our career or relationships or holidays. I know it's not rocket science to say, read your Bible, and it's not rocket science to say, be committed to a church. And it's not rocket science to say, don't fixate on other things, just keep your focus on Jesus and the hope of heaven. But if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe this is just a reminder, a prompt to say, wake up each morning ready to trust Jesus, ready to love other Christians and ready to look forward to the hope of heaven. Every day do that. Read your Bible, commit to a church and stop fixating on other things. That will help us each day be ready for the return of Jesus. Faith, love and hope. It's not rocket science, but it's how we stay awake and alert for the day that Jesus comes back. How that day won't take us by surprise, but instead we'll be ready for it. So we've seen that the day of the Lord will be sudden and destructive. We've seen Christians must be alert. And then in verse 9 to 11, we see we need to look to the cross for salvation. We need to look to the cross for salvation. Let's read verses 9 to 11 again. He writes, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, you remember that day of the Lord, this this great day of destruction of God's enemies and rescue for his people. As we've gone through, you may have had a question, which is, when that day of the Lord comes, why is it that Christians think we're going to be safe? Why is it that we're the ones who are going, we're going to be the ones receiving salvation and other people, maybe they're going to receive God's wrath? Why do we assume that we're the ones who are going to be rescued rather than destroyed? Why do we look forward to heaven, not to hell? Well, it's not because Christians think that we're better than everyone else, because we're not. It's not because Christians think we deserve it more than others. We don't. It's not because Christians have worked up faith, love, and hope within ourselves. We haven't. Actually, the reason why a Christian can look forward to salvation on that day It's all because of God's plan in Jesus. Just look at verse 9 again. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about God's plan, his appointing through Jesus. But how did Jesus bring that about? How did he bring about this salvation? 
Actually, these four words are, I think, the only place in the letter where Paul explains what was happening at the cross. Four very simple words. He died for us. He died for us. The reason why Christians can look forward to salvation on that day of the Lord and why anyone who trusts in Jesus can look forward to salvation on that day is because he died for us. Substitution is at the heart of Christianity and really is wonderful. It shows us the depth of love that God has for us. If you're wondering how we're supposed to feel about those four words when we read them, he died for us, just think about heroic stories of, of sacrifice and substitution. I came across one in the, the papers over the last month. I was struck by the, the heroic and deeply moving story of Jonathan Stevens. He was on holiday with his children off the north coast of Wales. The children aged 12 and 10, they were out swimming in, in the water. They had new bodyboards and they wanted to try them out and they were off swimming and dad Jonathan was on the beach. And suddenly in, in a moment that the waters changed and, and the kids were pulled out on a riptide out into the sea. And dad sitting on the beach sees the, the kids 100 meters just flown out and he jumps up, goes into the water and after them. And as he pulls them out, he is swept in in the process. And sadly, paramedics weren't able to rescue him. He died rescuing his kids. Isn't that heroic? Isn't that deeply moving? Isn't that just a wonderful, a wonderful thing of sacrifice to substitute yourself for someone else? He's a hero, isn't he? Absolute hero. Demonstrates the depth of love he has that he would die for them. And that gives you an insight into how a Christian should feel. Indeed, how anyone, even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, would feel when you read these four words. He died for us. Jesus died for us. He sacrificed himself instead of us. You see, I was talking about the day of the Lord earlier. And I said it's the day God came to rescue his people and destroy his enemies. And actually, biblically speaking, there's not just a day of the Lord in the future, but actually there's been a day of the Lord already in the past. There's been one day where God has come to rescue his people and destroy his enemies. That day is in the calendar, has been marked down. We do know the time. It was 2,000 years ago and has been celebrated ever since. The enemy that God destroyed that day was his one and only precious son, Jesus who had taken the place of us, who were by nature his enemies. Jesus became an enemy and was destroyed by God so that we might be rescued as his people. Jesus took our place. He experienced the wrath of God on that day. If you want to know what's going on as Jesus hangs on the cross, you just have to go back to that passage in Zephaniah and just substitute in Jesus. Right, so, so for Jesus, that day as he died on the cross was a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Not because Jesus had sinned, but because he died for us. And it's as we look back and trust that day in the past where Jesus died for us, that we can have confidence on the day of the Lord in the future that we'll receive salvation and not judgment. It's as we trust Jesus that we can receive salvation. Because God is a, he's, he's a just God. All sin and all sinners must be punished. Either they'll be punished on that day of the Lord in the future, or they'll be punished on the day of the Lord in the past where Jesus had taken our place, where he died for us. In God's perfect plan, there is a way for you and I to escape 
escape wrath and receive salvation on that day so that in the words of verse 10 whether we're awake or asleep we may live together with him as we look to the future we can have confidence we'll live on that day of the lord as we trust in jesus and it is through looking to the cross the day jesus died for us if you're here or tuning in and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, can I say how we'd love for you to turn and look back to the day Jesus died and trust that he died for you. Trust that so that on that day when he comes back, you won't receive wrath, but will receive salvation through Jesus. Please do that before it's too late. We don't know when the day is coming, so do it today. So as we come to a close... We've seen that, that the end of the world will be sudden and destructive. So Paul wants Christians to be alert and to keep looking to the cross. And I don't want to, to um, apologize for saying something very similar to what I said last week. Again, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. What Paul wants for us to do as a church is to keep encouraging one another and building one another up about that day. Our problem, I think, is not like the Thessalonians. I don't think we're confused most of the time. I think we're just distracted. I think that we're distracted in the busyness of London life, caught up with all the things we love doing, and we just forget to encourage each other about the day of the Lord. But Paul's purpose in writing is that we might encourage one another and build one another up as we look forward to that day. We need to remind one another that Jesus is coming back, that all of our life must be seen in relation to that reality. It's going to keep, it's ultimately going to mean reminding one another of the, of the cross that Jesus died for us. So have a think in your head about who the person this week is going to be who you're going to encourage in that way. Who's the person you are going to talk to and remind them Jesus is coming back to so keep on living as a Christian in faith, love, and hope. Take a moment to think about that in your heads. And when you've done that, let's pray together as we look forward to that day. Let's pray together. Father, these are, these are so sobering words that there is a day that you've appointed that you know where Jesus is coming back to destroy his enemies and to rescue his people. Father, pray that every one of us who've heard this passage this evening would turn and look to the cross and trust Jesus. Please would each one look to the cross and know Jesus died for us so that on that day we can receive salvation. And Father, for all of us who call ourselves Christians, please, would we encourage one another and build one another up. Help us to keep looking to that day, helping one another stay alert so that we're not surprised, but are ready for the return of Jesus. Would you help us to do that each day in his name? Amen.